Hey, here's what I want you to do. Turn your attention to the screen right here and look at this picture. This is a picture that was taken May the 3rd, 1963, by a photographer named Bill Hudson in Birmingham, Alabama. It was right in the midst of the civil rights movement. And it's a pretty graphic picture. There is a a white police officer who has a dog, part of the canine unit there, under the direction of Bull Connor there in Birmingham. And that dog appears to be attacking a 17-year-old black teenager. And and you see the people that are looking on there. You see the officer. You, You see this young man. You see the dogs. You see the arm of another officer that's there. Martin Luther King is not too far away from where this picture was taken. And some of the other leaders of the civil rights movement there who had just come out of a gathering there in Birmingham. And I want to read to you what author Malcolm Gladwell wrote about this picture in his book, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. This is what he said. The next day, the New York Times published it, the picture, above the fold across three columns on the front page of its Saturday paper, as did virtually every major paper in the country. President Kennedy saw the photo and was appalled. The photo was discussed on the floor of Congress and in countless living rooms and classrooms. For a time, it seemed like Americans could talk of little else. For years, Martin Luther King and his army of civil rights activists had been fighting the thicket of racist laws and policies that blanketed the American South. The rules that made it hard or impossible for blacks to get jobs, vote, get proper education, or even to use the same water fountain as a white person. Suddenly, the tide turned. A year later, the U.S. Congress passed the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964, one of the most important pieces of legislation in the history of the United States. The Civil Rights Act, it has been often said, was written in Birmingham. This picture provokes a lot of emotion. It was very uh, happy and jubilant about 70 seconds ago. Now it's quiet. Because of the emotions that are provoked by a picture like this. The things that we see and the things that we think we understand because of the context of history that we know about that time. Some of us maybe lived through that time. Others of us have studied that time and been presented with what was happening. Some of us lived right through these kinds of scenarios possibly. But we look at this and we see the emotion of what's happening here. But I want to present to you that maybe what you see here is not what it appears. I want you to look at that picture. I want you to look and see what's actually taking place. And I want to continue reading from later in the same chapter of Gladwell's book. And this is what he says. The boy, the black teenager in this picture, is Walter Gadsden. He was a sophomore at Parker High in Birmingham. He was six foot tall, 15 years old. I said 17 earlier. He He wasn't a marcher. He was actually a spectator. He came from a conservative black family that owned two newspapers in Birmingham and Atlanta that had been sharply critical of Martin Luther King. Gadsden had taken off school that afternoon just to watch the spectacle unfolding around Kelly Ingram Park. The officer in the picture is Dick Middleton. He was a modest and reserved man. The dog's name is Leo. Now look at the faces of the black bystanders in the background. Shouldn't they be surprised or horrified at what they're seeing? But they're not. Next, look at the leash in Middleton's hand. It's taut as if he is trying to restrain his dog, Leo. And look at Gadsden's left hand. He's gripping Middleton's forearm. Look at Gadsden's left leg. He's kicking Leo, the dog, isn't he? 
Gadsden would later say that he had been raised around dogs and had been taught how to protect himself. He said, I automatically threw up my knee in front of the dog's head. Gadsden wasn't a martyr. He was passively leaning forward, who was passively leaning forward as if to say, take me, here I am. He's steadying himself with a hand on Middleton so he can deliver a sharper blow. The word around the civil rights movement in relation to this picture is that the young man had actually broken the dog's jaw just before this. Hudson's photo may not be all that the world thought it was. Now, I don't show you this picture or read to you what I just read to change your view of history. I don't do it in any way to support anything that you think you see or I think I see in this picture. To me, racism was and is appalling. It is an unbelievable sin against fellow brothers and sisters. Interestingly, even in the present American South, it is one of the acceptable secret sins that we allow to go unpunished or unchecked. When people tell jokes or make statements that we don't have the courage to fight against, like many of the people we're fighting against in this picture. It's one of those things in the American South we've just allowed to continue. But I wanted to show you this picture to reiterate a point that many of us know so well. You can't often judge a book by its cover. Or maybe you can't infer something from just one glance at a still image. If you got your Bibles today, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to conclude our summer-long look at the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been there all summer in a series we've called Summer at the Mount. And we've been looking at what Jesus said in his original first sermon. One of the longest pieces of dialogue that Jesus ever gave in one setting is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And as we conclude today, I want to begin there in verse 1 of Matthew 7. And this is what it says. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw pearls before the pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Do you know Christians that just love judging people? I got an amen. I mean, they, they think that the scenario plays out like this. This is the order of, of events. Be a sinner in need of a savior. Accept the free gift of grace and mercy and salvation from Jesus Christ. Turn into a critical judge of everyone that you meet. You know anybody like that? Are you someone like that? Because I see so much of this in people that call themselves Christians. Some of the most judgmental people I know are Christians. And, and, and interestingly to me, the more I get to know them, some of the most judgmental people that I know are often hiding their own sins and shortcoming behind their accusation of others. Judging people is so difficult because we who have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, hold in our hands a book, the Bible, that we know, for those of us that believe in it, to separate right from wrong. 
And when we hold that knowledge in our hand, we take it upon ourselves to begin to delineate right from wrong. And to call people into judgment that we see in error or see standing on the wrong side of truth. And often it comes out of maybe a pure heart originally as we start to read God's word. I ran across this quote and I've used it before, but this is from Jonathan Martin, who used to be a pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina. And this is what he says about reading the Bible. He said, if you read scripture and it makes you feel smug and smart, like you have all the answers, you're reading it wrong. Sometimes we take scripture and we read it and we see what it does to us and we see the change that it calls us to. And we want to take that and begin to apply it to the lives of other people. Again, sometimes out of very pure initial motives. We want anyone that we know, anyone that we love, anyone that we work with, anyone that we're friends with, to take that same change agent of God's word and apply it to their own lives and apply it to their own heart. And if they aren't willing to do that themselves, then we feel like it's our job, it's our calling to help them apply that scripture, even if it hurts them. Because that's what we're called to as Christians, right? We're called to make sure that they know they're in the wrong. So what did Jesus say about this? If we're to call ourselves Christians, which are Christ followers, for some of us in the room, not everybody I understand. For those who are Christians, we're taking on the name of Jesus Christ. That's where the word Christian comes from. It means to be a Christ follower or a little Christ, an, an imitator of Christ. And so what did Jesus say? What did Jesus do when he came to the earth? This is what it says in John chapter 12. This is Jesus talking. He says, I've come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. I will not judge those who hear me, but don't obey me. For I have come to save the world and not to judge it. But all who reject me and my message will be judged on the day of judgment by the truth that I have spoken. I want to read verse 47. It was the one in the middle and then finish with that just so we're all on the same page. I will not judge those. I, Jesus, will not judge those who hear me but don't obey me. For I've come to save the world and not to judge it. But all who reject me and my message will be judged on the day of judgment by the truth that I have spoken. Jesus, the only perfect and blameless man ever to walk the face of the earth, said that me on earth, Jesus, it's not my job to judge people. That's what he said. I didn't make that up. Any Bible that you're holding will say some version, some translation of what that is. And that's not Jeremy's words, that's Jesus' words. I did not come to judge those who hear and don't obey. But wait a minute, that's, that's different than what I thought. That's different than what I was told. That's different than what a lot of Christians say on Facebook. That's different than what I understood it to be. Now, there's a lot of different things that we can read in Scripture. So I'm not trying to choose one or two verses that support my position today because this is not a position paper. I'm trying to expose what I believe to be the truth of God's word. And one of the other places that I find that is in the writings of a man named Paul. Paul wrote a huge majority of the New Testament. And one of the books that he wrote was, wrote was actually a letter to the church in the city of Rome. Fittingly, that letter is called Romans. And so he writes to the Romans in the letter Romans to the church in the city of Rome. Okay, are you with me? That was very confusing, I know. 
And in chapter 1, he lays out a lot of foundational things about what he's going to say in the rest of this letter. And at the end of chapter 1, he begins to talk about a horrible group of people. I mean, terrible group of people who have been given over to their own sinful, lustful desires. Things that they do that we see in our present culture. And he's saying, listen, they're engaged in this. And, and it's almost like they think they're right by doing these things. And man, he's just laying it on thick. Paul is talking about the people that these people in Rome, the church people in Rome, would be in contact with. He's saying there's all kinds of people in Rome where you live. And some of those people are doing horrible things that we know do not honor God. And then, here's interesting, just for you that may not know this, when the Bible was written, it was not written in chapter and verse. Later, people came back and added verse numbers and chapter numbers. Like, Paul wasn't writing the letter and then said, okay, chapter 2 starts now. Later, other people tried to do that so that it would be easy for us to be able to point to it. So that I could say, hey, turn to Romans chapter 2 and you would know where to go. And not, hey, if you'll scroll down about 72% down the scroll, then you're going to go down. You're going to find these three words together. I want you to go to that spot. So people came and said it'll be easier as people are learning to read and can read the Bible for themselves. If there's place markers, if there's verses and chapter numbers. And so when you and I read scripture, sometimes we're reading through devotional plans or we're doing one of those things. We're asking God, show me something to read. And we just flip it open and we start reading and we're like, wow, I don't even know what that has to do with my life. But what we're doing actually is we're reading through the whole Bible. And I encourage you to do that. There's all kinds of reading plans. There's devotional books. Um, version is an app I've referenced several times. You can do it on the web or through devices. And they will give you Bible reading plans with little short pieces of scripture each day to read through the entire Bible. And when you do that, you get the whole picture of Scripture, the whole story. So I want you to keep in mind that even though I'm going to start reading here in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, this is actually just the next sentence after Paul is describing a bunch of horrible people. And so this doesn't pick up in the middle. This doesn't pick up in a new part of the story. This is actually just the middle, the continuation of what Paul has been saying. So Romans chapter 2, verse 1. So about these horrible people, this is what he says. You may think you can condemn such people. But you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are actually condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God and his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? I know, I felt the same way the first time I read that. <laughs> Don't you see that your, his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Now, Paul had this incredible way of putting things into perspective. But here are my three takeaways from what we just read in Romans 2. Verses 1 through 4. The first of these is this. We expect, we expect far more grace than we give. I'm going to let that one land a little bit. We expect far more grace than we give. We want people to be gracious to us because we know our motives. We know that that's not what we intended to do. We know that we're better than that. Right? There's a Russian proverb that goes something like this. When we see us, we see our potential. But when others see us, they only see our past. The idea being that others 
see us for what we've done. And we want them to be gracious to us. We want them to grant us grace because we know that we're better than that. We know that we don't have to make those same mistakes. And we say, please give me grace. But when we see others, we judge them only for their past actions and we give far less grace to them than we expect from ourselves or for ourselves. And Paul's saying, listen, there's a horrible group of people, but be careful how you treat them because you're going to want that same kind of grace from God. And you're just as guilty as they are. The second thing kind of goes hand in hand with that, but it says we forgive far less than we seek forgiveness. We forgive far less than we seek forgiveness. We're always asking for people to forgive us for something. And yet we are so slow to forgive others. I mean, we, it's like painful to forgive somebody. And we do that thing, like we don't say it, but we do that thing in our head, like, yeah, I'll forgive you, but I ain't never forgetting it. Nope, never. I will never forget what you did to me. I'll never forget what you did in this situation. You want my forgiveness? Yeah, I'll forgive you and I'll tell you that I forgive you, but I don't really forgive you. I just forgive you enough with my words that you think I've forgiven you, but actually in here, it's still not forgiven because I'm still thinking about it, dwelling on it and holding you accountable for it. What Paul's saying right here is, listen, (laughs) this is a repeat of a theme that we see in the passage in Matthew 7, but I mean... We're going to be used, it's going to be used against us the same measure of forgiveness that we have given. The same standard that we use to judge is the same standard that will be used against us. So we need to be very, very careful here because we tend to forgive far less than we seek forgiveness. The third thing is this. We judge far more harshly than we wish to be judged. I mean, I told you a little bit about grace, but I think we judge a lot more harshly than we hope that people would judge us. And we do it sometimes without even knowing people. I know you've never done this, so I'm just going to tell them myself since I'm wearing the mic right now. Like, I just look at people and judge them. You've never done that. Sean's done that a couple times, but nobody else has ever done that. Like, we just look at them and go, yeah. And we just label them. We just immediately identify them by what we think they are. What we think they can do. What we think they should do. They're not living up to their potential. They shouldn't do those things. They shouldn't live that way. They shouldn't make those choices. And we just judge them. The problem is, we pray to God nobody ever does that to us. We want to be given the opportunity to explain ourselves and to explain our motives and to explain the circumstances that got us to this place and how we arrived here and, man, what happened to get us to this place. But we tend to judge far more harshly than we wish to be judged. And Paul's talking to this church group in the city of Rome in a letter fittingly titled Romans. But if it was written to us today, the letter would be called Cantonese. To a church in Canton. To a bunch of church people. He would say, listen, there's a bunch of people that you want to condemn. Because they're horrible. They're terrible. They do horrible things. But his first, his first words to us in Cantonese chapter 2 verse 1. Says, you may think that you can condemn these people, but you're just as bad. And that's difficult to, to think because... We tend to rank ourselves in relationship to others, right? My dad tells a story, and I told you I wouldn't reference him for six months, but I'm so sorry. It just flows out of me. He was my pastor growing up. I heard him preach like a thousand times, so it just naturally comes out of me. But my dad tells a story that he was sitting in a service one night, and this man walked in who smelled horrible. He probably hadn't showered in weeks. 
His hair was like all the way down his back. His clothes were dirty. He walked in. God did something in his life that night. Saved him. He saw the ushers and the people like looking at him. Like, who is this guy? We need to keep an eye on him. He doesn't look safe. God did something and saved him. He went home. Got his hair cut. Got a shower. Got some new clothes. Came back to church the next Sunday and they handed him a visitor card. Didn't even know it was him. And at the end of that service, they asked, does anybody have anything they want to tell about the goodness of God? This old man raised his hand. He said, I came here last week and I was dirty on the inside and the outside. And he started describing the things that he had done in his life. And he talked about his physical condition, the outward appearance, just being a reflection of what was happening on the inside of him. And there was this thing inside of my dad that he says he had this thought that was something like this. Thank God when I came to the Lord, I didn't look like that guy. And he said the Holy Spirit checked his heart and said, you may not have looked like that on the outside, but you were just as messed up on the inside. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, you may be really good at cleaning up the outside. You may be really good at putting on a good appearance and making people think you've got all your stuff together. But God knows your heart. And the same people that you are pointing your judgment and condemnation towards, God sees that you are just as bad on the inside. Your heart is just as bad. So you better be careful when you begin condemning people. In actuality... It's, it's an opposite approach from God, is it not? We read that at the end of verse 4 there in Cantonese chapter 2. Did we not? I'm just going to keep that metaphor going because it just seems to land heavier in the room. Cantonese 2, 4, and the second part of that verse said what? It said, can't you see that it's his kindness that's intended to turn you from your sin? It's, it's his kindness? You mean the kindness that would make the Son of God, Jesus Christ, on the earth say that I, Jesus, the perfect, blameless Son of God, came to earth not to judge people? That is so different of an idea than I thought in my head. But the reality for all of us is that we're probably judging the wrong people anyway. I mean, we're probably judging the wrong people anyway. I want to read this in 1 Corinthians 5, also written by Paul to another group of people in Woodstock, not Canton. Some of you need to loosen up. First Corinthians, he wrote it to the group of people in Corinth. He was very creative like that. Verse 12, it says, It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. He's talking to these people about a guy who's living in sexual sin. And he says, listen, there's a guy that you've allowed to stay in your church that calls himself by the same name you call yourself, followers of Jesus, and you know that he's guilty. But instead of judging him, you're judging the other people in the city of Corinth who are guilty of the same sin, except that they don't call themselves by the same name you do. He does. And yet you're letting him kind of skate free. Trevor, come here. I want you to stand right there because we both look like marathoners. We both look like runners. We're fit in that way. I want you to stand right there and I want, to act, I want you to act like you're running towards that flag. I'm going to run in the other direction. I'm going to run much faster than you because I'm in much better shape. And we're going to run... In opposite directions. Ready? Set? Go. You're horrible! Okay, now I want you to go back. Okay? A little winded. A little winded? Yeah. 
Oh, I saw what you ate for breakfast. I can understand that. Now, let me just let me just set up what happened. We're both running in opposite directions. And he ran by me and I screamed at him. Okay, because that's who I am. I'm a screamer. Okay, ready? We're going to run again. Ready? Here we go. Here we go. Oh, man, good job lifting those knees high. That's working good for you. All right, now stop. Go back. You you, you all right? You're running suicides here. Wind sprints. Catching his breath. Now, here's what I want you to see. In this illustration that is really well put together, he is the sinner, fittingly. I am the saint, obviously. Or as Paul said in the book of Woodstock, Corinthians, some of you aren't with, Rachel was with me, but some of you aren't with me. He's the outsider. I'm the insider. I'm a part of the church. I'm a part of those who have been entrusted with the gospel message. I'm running the race that Paul said was set before me. Right? I'm running in a specific direction that God would have me to run to accomplish what God would have me to accomplish. He is not on the same race. He's running his own race, trying to accomplish his own things. Who knows what it is? He's trying to acquire wealth. He's trying to find purpose. He's trying to find a wife. He's trying, whatever it is that he's trying to do, he's running a separate race than I'm running. Now, my first encounter with him was to scream at him, to criticize him, to tell him he wasn't doing something right. But then the second time, I actually encouraged him. He's still running a different race than I am. But I found some common ground in our interaction that allowed me to have a positive interaction with him. Now, I don't know that it's the first time or the second time or the third time or the tenth time. But my hope would be that my kindness would turn him towards repentance. Because that's scriptural. I didn't make that up. That's in First Cantonese chapter 2, if you remember that we read that earlier. And then the outsider potentially becomes an insider. The one who I was screaming and blaming and judging with little effect becomes a part of the same race that I'm running. Who's now running a race that's been set out before him because of the goodness and mercy and kindness of God. The same kindness that I received. I didn't start this race on my own. God called me to it. God extended to me mercy and grace and salvation and goodness. His kindness brought me into this race. And so now he's a part of this race too. Potentially through my interaction with him. Potentially through my kindness. But most importantly through the drawing, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because no one comes to God outside of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter how persuasive I can be to anybody. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in them that does it. But my question is, does my interaction with him or others make it easier for them to be receptive to the Holy Spirit's work in them? And so now he's an insider and he and I are running the same race. And now that he's a part of this, now that we have relationship, now that we're moving in the same direction, relationship and community can take place. And in the closeness of this relationship, I can say, man, you're running great. You're doing really well. Like I can see your time's improving. You're getting better. You're getting stronger. But your diet is horrible. You're drinking, you're, you're, you're eating horrible food. Those Cajun filet biscuits at Bojangles don't help you accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. Can I get an amen from somebody in the room? I know they're heavenly. And I have the opportunity as an insider to a fellow insider to call out the things in him that need to be corrected. In relationship, in community. 
you know what we read? Hang on here for a second. You know what we read in Matthew chapter 7 when we started? How dare you look at the speck in someone's eye when you have a log in your own? Now, there's a ton there and thousands of sermons have been preached way more eloquently than I ever could. But here's what I've always thought when I read that. How close do you have to be to somebody to actually see the speck in their eye? I can't see it while he's running the other direction. I only scream general things about him. But in the context of community and relationship, I'm right up close here. I go, man, there's something in you that needs correcting. I can't, I can't see a speck from way over here. And some of us are so afraid of community because we're afraid of what they see in us. And God's calling us to get close. To be in community to say, there's something I want to see in you and I want you to see in me so that if there's something wrong, we can correct it together. We can call out greatness in one another. We can call out holiness and purity in one another. I can't call out purity in someone that doesn't even run the same race I'm running. They don't even identify themselves by the same name that I have, a Christian, a Christ follower. They're running a completely different race. It makes no sense for me to try to hold them accountable to a book that they may not believe in. To a set of standards, a law that they don't even appreciate. That was written, given to us by a heavenly father and through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross that they've still never even accepted and entered into relationship with. But anybody who starts calling themselves a Christian makes themselves accountable to other Christians. Because I say, man, if you're calling yourself by the same thing I'm calling myself by, I want you to represent me well. I want to represent you well because we're both representing him. And I want to do so in such a way that allows other outsiders to see you and I and go, wow, there is something about them. There's a kindness in them. There's a goodness in them. And I I need to figure out what this is about. There's been this thing going on inside of me that's just tugging at my heart. It's pulling me towards something and my interaction with you seems to echo that some of us we judge from afar and we we can't see the speck because we're not close enough they're they're running a different race but in christian community in relationship we give one another permission to hold each other accountable to the name by which we identify ourselves now here's here's where i want us to land today Because I know that there are some of us in the room who are so incredibly uncomfortable right now. Uncomfortable is probably not even the right word. You're already formulating the email that you're going to write to me. And tell me how wrong I am and that I'm leaving out a whole chunk of the gospel. Please write it so that we can engage in conversation. Because hopefully we're in relationship with one another. Where healthy conversation can take place. But today is not intended to let anyone off the hook. If that's how you feel. Because here's what it says in Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here's what you need to know today. There is a judge. It's just not you. There's a judgment coming. But it's probably not this moment. There's a judge. But I'm not him. Guess what? Jesus on earth wasn't him either. What did he say? I did not come to judge those who hear me and don't obey. But there will be a day of judgment. That's what he said. That's the words of Jesus. There is a judge. It's just not me and you. And so the standard that we have attempted to use to judge others is really us playing God. Maybe you've never thought of it that way, but what you're saying is, I don't want to wait until God does his job. So I'm going to do his job for him before he's ready to do his job. Because we read that he was patient and kind. His patience is actually being displayed because he has yet to call humanity into judgment. That day's coming. We believe that. I believe that. I believe that everyone, myself included, and those who appear to be as far away from God as possible, will all be held accountable for what we've done. Because there is a judge. I'm just not him. And God, in his patience, hasn't called for the day of judgment yet. And so when I attempt to judge outsiders and to say, you're not living right, you're not doing it right, you're not doing what you're supposed to do according to Scripture, when I, I'm actually taking God's job at an undetermined time in the future and I'm saying to Him, today I'll be God and I'll do your job because you're not doing it fast enough. What if my mindset changed? What if I said, okay, God, I'm going to let you be God. And I'm going to be patient because you seem to be patient. And, and I'm going to be kind because you seem to be kind. And I'm going to let you be the judge because I'm not the judge. I'm actually going to be the judged as well. I'm actually going to be on the receiving end of your judgment, God. And so if that's the case, I don't want to read scripture and become arrogant and smug and think that I've aced the test and everyone else is failing. I actually want to plead with the teacher for more time to do better, to get it right, to learn more what it means to live for you, God. So that the day that you do call us into judgment, I can plead for your mercy and your grace. I can ask that you would see me through the lens of your son, Jesus Christ, who actually was the only blameless, perfect one ever to walk the earth. And he said that he would die on a cross because none of us would be good enough on that day. And so, God, I'm praying that when you look at me on that day, you would actually see me through the sacrifice of your son on the cross. And I pray that somehow, God, my interaction with other people here on earth would put them in the same position to be willing and able 
to plead for your grace and your mercy and to be seen through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Because there is a judge. It's just not me. And it's not you. Two groups of people I want us to pray for today. The first group is the group that's sitting in here and you know you've been judged. You've been hurt. You're still here, thank God, probably through just that really cool internal work of the Holy Spirit in you, even if you didn't have that vocabulary to call it. You know you've been judged. You know people have looked at you and labeled you and called you names and they've judged you. Here's what I would say to you today. I pray you hear my heart that there is a judge. It's just not me. And it's not anybody else in this room and it's not anybody else in your life here on earth. I pray that you would see yourself in need of a savior. I pray that you would realize that maybe there's areas of your life where you sin. You have maybe addictive behavior. You have areas of your life that don't allow you to get to God. They, they create this separation. That's really what sin is. It's the separation between you and God. And the book of Romans, which we read earlier, we labeled it Cantonese for a little while. Paul tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I'm so sorry if anybody has made you think that they had stopped sinning and got it all right and that you were still the only one left behind doing the sinning because we're all guilty. And so today I I would just ask you to allow us another opportunity to be kind to you. And in our kindness, I pray that you would actually see the reflection of a loving God who is being patient so that you can reciprocate his love, that you can receive his grace, so that you would acknowledge, God, I I don't even know how to pray, but I just know that I'm not right and I need a savior. You're, You're why we're here today. And if anybody's ever made you believe anything different, I'm so sorry. In just a minute, we're going to give you the opportunity to respond if you feel like God's kind of tugging at your heart through what I referenced earlier, that conviction of the Holy Spirit, that work of God in you, His Spirit connecting to your spirit that just says, man, there's something that's not right in my heart. I need to acknowledge my sinfulness and ask God to be the Lord and Savior of my life. We're going to give you that opportunity in just a minute. And as I'm addressing another group of people, I would just say to you now, just ask God, God, help me figure out what to pray, what to say. Reveal in me the things that don't match up to who you want me to be. The second group of people in the room, of which I'm a part of, are those who judge. Who have taken on the job of God. And think that it's our role here on earth to do even what Jesus wouldn't do and judge others. And today I would say to you the same thing that I have said to myself all week long. Repent. Beg of God's mercy and forgiveness. And attempt to live a life of kindness. As God himself is demonstrating. Towards people who need to see God. And when we scream and yell and judge and label I don't know that that reflects God. And I want to be known as someone who points people to the Father. 
I hope you hear my heart. I'm not talking about watering anything down. I'm not talking about changing the gospel or leaving it short of what it should be. I just want to live my life doing the job God called me to do and not trying to do his job. Because there is a judge. It's just not you. Let's pray. God, I pray today for these two groups of people. I pray, God, for those this morning who are here in need of a Savior. I pray today, God, for those in this room who know that they have sinned and fallen short of your glory, which is all of us, but that, God, they need you as the Savior. They've maybe never prayed that prayer. They've never asked you to live in their life, live in their heart, live through them in the way that they interact. And so they say today, maybe, I need God to be the Lord and Savior of my life. Not just to save me from my sin, but to lead and guide and direct me in the way that I should live. And with every head bowed and every eye closed today, if that's you and you would say, Jeremy, today what you're saying, it's, it's me. I know that's me. And that, that pull of God in my spirit, that Holy Spirit conviction, as I've been calling it, that, that's happening in me. And I want to acknowledge that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Would you just lift your hand? Nobody's looking around. You can put it right back down. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Thank you so much. You can put it right back down. I pray now for every person that just lifted their hands. God, I pray that you would receive them as you already have. You, you've been at work in their heart all day. And God, before they lifted their hand, they had acknowledged in their heart, and that's enough. And so God, today we celebrate with those who are making decisions to follow you to live their lives in accordance with who you're calling them to be. And God, I pray today that you would help them, strengthen them, encourage them, surround them with people that will lovingly care for them and shaping their soul in a way that honors you. I pray today, God, for those in the room, myself included, who are guilty of judging others. God, help us today to reflect your goodness, your kindness, your mercy. Help us today, God, to be who you are to realize that there is a judge. It's just you. It's not us. God, let us live in such a way that our kindness would actually turn them to you in repentance. God, help transform our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.